Hey, I have a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audio selections, ranging from books to podcasts to even meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I can listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author and the publisher do not sponsor me at all. Every recommendation is a book I personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 62 of History of the Marine Corps, the reconquest of Los Angeles. Last week's episode discussed the siege of Los Angeles. We followed Stockton, Fremont, and Gillespie as they made their way south and seized California towns along the way. And we ended with Gillespie ultimately losing the city of Los Angeles to Californians. This episode gets into one of the bloodiest battles of the Mexican-American War, the Battle of San Pasqual. We follow Gillespie and the United States as they prepare to take Los Angeles for a second time. Thanks for joining, now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. It took a little over a month for the messenger Archibald Gillespie dispatched from Los Angeles to reach Stockton in the San Francisco area. In Northern California, Stockton was speaking to the Walla Walla Native Americans after they had gone on a warpath. He knew some members of the tribe and attempted to soothe things over before there was an escalation. When Stockton received the message, he immediately changed his focus and sent the Savannah to San Pedro to support the Marine. He also ordered Fremont to travel with some of his men and help Gillespie as well. The reinforcements left Northern California on October 15th, about six weeks after the United States lost the city to the rebels. As they were making their way south, they met up with a ship from Monterey with another message stating that the garrison was in danger of being attacked by angry Californians. So Stockton made a quick detour to Monterey, dropped off two officers and 50 men, which included a detachment of Marines led by Lieutenant Maddox, and continued his voyage to Gillespie. While Stockton and the reinforcements were traveling south, Gillespie was heading north to San Pedro. He arrived on October 7th, and the Marine briefed Captain William Mervine on Los Angeles. Mervine took the news of the loss seriously, and he immediately made plans on retaliating against the Californians. Mervine's motivation for revenge clouded his judgment, and he wanted to attack Los Angeles that afternoon. 
But Gillespie and Gilchrist convinced him to wait until he formed a plan, and they were prepared to take the city. This argument didn't add too much time to that preparation, and the next morning, Mervine landed a force of three companies of sailors, a detachment of marines, and Gillespie's unruly drunkards. However, there were some serious holes in his preparation. He lacked artillery, he didn't carry extra ammunition, and he didn't have supplies needed for carrying the wounded. Gillespie was not quiet about Mervine's lack of preparation and constantly urged him to reconsider his plan, but it fell on deaf ears. But this didn't stop Gillespie from preparing, and the Marine and his troops carried extra gunpowder and ammunition, which they stored in their blankets that were fashioned into backpacks. The Californians were waiting for the United States' return, and a short skirmish broke out as soon as the landing force arrived. However, shortly after the conflict started, the Californians fled. Mervine dispatched another 80 men and the force of 310 prepared to head towards Los Angeles. The Marines formed the front guard of the advancing party, and they led the attack. Their flanks were protected by Gillespie's men who were deployed as skirmishers. As the force marched towards Los Angeles, they met more resistance, near Palos Verdes. The Californians had the high ground, and as Mervine and his men advanced through a narrow valley, the enemy fired down at the troops. Gillespie ordered his men to charge the hill, and his men quickly cleared the enemy. But when he returned, he received an ass-chewing from Mervine. Quote, Captain Mervine now began to holler after me. He said, Captain Gillespie, you are wasting ammunition. We can't spare the caps. Repeating this and a variety of like expressions of displeasure, discouraging to my men. Unquote. As they continued their march, they camped at the Rancho Dominguez for the night. As soon as darkness fell, Californians began to fire at the resting troops. It wasn't a large coordinated attack, just sporadic musket fire, but Mervine did not handle the attack well. Gillespie said that he acted, quote, more like an insane man than aught else I can compare him to, unquote. Mervine activated the entire company and sent parties to random locations. There was one incident in the night where Californians fired a cannon at the Americans. Gillespie was ordered by Mervine to take a couple of parties and capture the gun. But after hours of trying to chase down the enemy, Gillespie and his officers thought the best move was to stop the wild goose chase and return back to camp. Nothing was accomplished by his actions. No intelligence, no prisoners, no extra supplies, nothing. The only thing Mervine's panic accomplished was tiring out his men. The next morning, troops were exhausted from lack of sleep, but they continued their march towards Los Angeles. That same day, they ran into about 50 Californians carrying a four-pounder. It turns out that these were the same men who Gillespie was chasing all night. I'm going to go off on another short tangent here, but there's an interesting story about this cannon. Before Los Angeles was taken the first time, the cannon was mounted in the plaza and guarded a religious site. When Americans entered Los Angeles in August, the women of the town took the cannon and buried it in the orchard. As soon as Gillespie left his fort after agreeing to the Californians' terms, the cannon was uncovered and fixed up so it may be used again to fight the Americans. 
So when the news of Mervine advancing on Los Angeles reached the Californians, they prepared the cannon for use. As Mervine and his men were within a quarter of a mile, the enemy fired the first volley. The shot missed, and the Californians retreated a few yards, loaded the cannon, and fired again. This shot managed to hit the sailors in the rear of Mervine's formation. The Californians mounted the cannon on wheels and attached it to their horses. This made it very mobile, and it was difficult for the Americans to stop the enemy from firing. In Gillespie's words, this cannon was a, quote, dreadful havoc, unquote, on the troops, and the Americans were unable to capture the cannon or stop the Californians. Mervine decided to retreat to San Pedro. However, this decision was made just as men were making progress and were about to capture the cannon. The Americans' coordinated attack caused the Californians to leave the cannon, but just as they were rushing to take it, Mervine ordered them to stop. The United States retreated to Rancho Dominguez to rest. The Californians tried to position themselves on the hill and attack the camp, but the Marines beat them to it. They set up a strong defense and repelled the enemy from securing the hill. There were 1,800 Californians in the area. It was determined that another advance on Los Angeles was an ideal, and the United States decided to hold off on taking the city. Gillespie sent a report to George Bancroft, the Secretary of the Navy, and stated that this was, quote, one of the most disgraceful defeats our arms have ever sustained, unquote. Gillespie went on to say that if Mervine had made the preparations he and Gilchrist recommended, they could have overpowered the enemy and taken the city. He wasn't alone in his opinion. And Stockton reported something similar to Bancroft. Stockton would later write, quote, Being in the habit of calling things by their right names, I have in all my letters called it a defeat, and a very bad defeat, unquote. While Stockton was figuring out what to do with Los Angeles, he received a letter stating that General Kearney arrived 50 miles east of San Diego after marching from Fort Leavenworth. He had with him 100 dragoons. Stockton sent Gillespie with 26 of his men and 10 sailors to meet Kearney, brief him on the situation, and let him know that there were 100 enemies nearby. Gillespie embarked on a tough trek and carried an artillery piece through rocky terrain. Kearney was marching towards Gillespie as well, and the army arrived at Warner's Ranch on December 5th. Gillespie reported, quote, Our flag was immediately given to the breeze and displayed for the first time upon those distant mountains, cheering the wayward soldiers with the sight of the stars and stripes where they least expected to meet them, unquote. Both parties were exhausted from their long march, specifically the army who had been marching for days. When Gillespie approached the dragoons on a cold, wet night, he discovered the men just lying on the wet ground, trying to get some rest. Quote, Almost exhausted by their long and arduous march, the whole force, including some of the officers, presented an appearance of weariness and fatigue, rarely, if ever, met with upon any other service. The men were without any exception sadly in want of clothing. That which they wore was ragged and torn. They were almost without shoes. And although we were constantly accustomed to much privation and suffering, 
my men considered their condition superior to that of these way-worn soldiers, whose strength and spirit seemed to be entirely gone. Unquote. To compensate for the exhaustion and lack of morale, Kearney wanted to surprise the enemy, and he planned to launch an attack the following morning. However, Lieutenant Thomas C. Hammond decided to take several dragoons and scout the Californians' positions. He moved his men so close that the sound of their swords clanking awakened the Californians. As they say in the Marine Corps, good initiative, bad judgment. The Californians were now aware of the Americans, but Kearney kept his plan and attacked in the morning. His plan was for Gillespie to stay back and protect the supplies in the rear. But the Marine presented a strong argument against Kearney's decision and stated that his artillerists were better trained and had equipment that was in much better condition. Kearney was convinced, changed his orders, and Gillespie was placed in the left flank of the Dragoon's main body. The United States advanced towards San Pasqual to confront the enemy. Archibald Gillespie goes into great detail about this battle, starting with the morning advance. Quote, the weather had cleared, and the moon shone as bright as day, but the wind coming from the snow-covered mountains made it so cold we could scarcely hold our bridle reins. Unquote. As dawn broke, the Americans reached the peak of the hill overlooking the valley. They made final preparations. Gillespie gave a motivational speech and informed his men that, quote, one thrust of a saber point was far more effective than any number of cuts, unquote, and the men advanced into the valley in a column of twos. Gillespie's mission was to follow the main party of dragoons, led by Captain Moore, and help him surround the town and capture any horses or enemy in the area. As they approached the town, Captain Moore gave the order to trot, but Army Captain Johnson misheard the command for charge, and he and his 12 dragoons immediately took off, leaving the main party in the dust. By this time, the Californians were in a great position since they knew the Americans were coming. They put up a strong resistance, and Captain Johnston was one of the first to die by a musket ball through the middle of his head. When the main party reached Johnston, the Californians retreated. Gillespie anticipated the enemy to circle back and flank their positions, so he ordered his men to advance on the retreating Californians. This decision was a good idea, and Gillespie's men forced any hiding Californians out of the bush and drove them to retreat. He was also able to capture the second-in-command, Pablo Vejar. However, the army of dragoons was having a difficult time keeping up with each other. They were spread over a mile. The Californians used the disorganization to their advantage and attacked the Americans. Californians were some of the best horsemen in the world, and their organized attack left a deadly impact on every dragoon detachment. Captain Moore died during the first attack. Gillespie quickly came to the front lines, where he spotted 25 dragoons, attempting to turn around and retreat. With his sword in hand, Gillespie charged towards the enemy, shouting, quote, Rally, men. For God's sake, rally. Show a front. Don't turn your backs. Face them. Face them. Follow me. Unquote. But his motivation fell on deaf ears, and with their leader dead, the men cold and exhausted, the army didn't follow Gillespie. The Californians saw the Marine and instantly recognized him. 
Gillespie engaged in some heavy hand-to-hand combat. He managed to parry the first six lance thrusts, but was sliced in the back of the neck on the seventh. Gillespie was thrown from his horse and pinned on the ground with his sword under him. He would continue to be attacked and describe the event. Quote, I received a thrust from a lance from behind me, striking above the heart, making a severe gash open to the lungs. I turned my face in the direction of my assailant, when one of the enemy riding at full speed charged upon me, dashed his lance at my face, struck and cutting my upper lip, broke a front tooth and threw me upon my back as his horse jumped over me. Recovering myself immediately and getting up on my feet, I was enabled to cut my way out of the crowd towards one of the howitzers, where our scattered force had begun to rally." The Dragoons continued to fight against the Californians any way they could. They used their muskets as club against the charging lancers. There were dead and wounded lying everywhere, and the army continued to retreat. At the first howitzer, Gillespie was waiting for the men to assemble, but they just retreated past him. With little option, Gillespie left the howitzer and the Californians captured it for use. Kearney wasn't in a better situation. He received two severe wounds from the attacking Californians. Gillespie, severely injured and losing a lot of blood, managed to stumble his way towards the second cannon. As he approached, he heard the conversation of two men looking for a match to light the cannon. There wasn't a light. With his remaining strength, Gillespie said, quote, Quick as thought, I lit my cigar match as I ordered a dragoon to put on more powder and instantly fired the gun. As I handed the match to the dragoon, I fainted. Unquote. Midshipman James Duncan brought another cannon and fired a round of grape shot, which cleared the field of the enemy. According to Gillespie, there were 38 American casualties that day. The number of Californians killed isn't precisely known, but it's estimated that it was less than the Americans. The Battle of San Pasqual was one of the bloodiest battles in the conquest of California. Archibald Gillespie states that it was a costly battle, quote, without any advantageous results, unquote, but he considered it a victory. But despite Gillespie's opinion of the battle, it wasn't a victory for the United States. Yes, the U.S. managed to keep the terrain, but there wasn't a strategic advantage to this land. The U.S. lost more men than the Californians, which included some of their officers. They also lost some of their weapons to the Californians. Kearney and his men lost most of their cattle in the skirmish, and before continuing their trek to San Diego, he decided to rest until reinforcements arrived. The men survived off mule meat for four days until sailors and marines under Lieutenant Andrew F. V. Gray and Captain Jacob Zylan arrived. The Californians saw the reinforcements and decided to hold on their attack. They grouped up and headed towards Los Angeles. The Americans advanced towards San Diego again, and without Californians in the area, they managed to reach their destination in three days and faced no resistance. They arrived on December 12th and immediately started planning on how to capture Los Angeles for a second time. But unlike the first attack, a lot of preparation was made for this battle. The camp was brimming with activity. Many supplies were lost, and throughout the camp, men were making saddles, bridles, 
shoes, weapons, and anything else that was lost in previous engagements or just lost through the journey. The United States also needed this time for men to recover from the battle, including Kearney and Gillespie. On December 29th, the United States was prepared and they advanced towards Los Angeles. Kearney changed his approach on how far to push the men during this march. They advanced slowly, and the farthest they traveled in a day was 21 miles. The horses and mules were weak from the weather and the lack of food, so men sometimes pushed the carts. On January 8th, Stockton's force was two miles from San Gabriel. The Californians were on a hill overlooking the river. They were 600 strong, split into three divisions, with the right flank about two miles downstream. The Americans stopped before the river and prepared for battle. As the U.S. planned their attack, the Californians had 150 men cross the river and tried to cause wild horses to stampede towards the Americans. Their plan had little effect, and the American troops, tired and angry, didn't budge. A group of U.S. soldiers was ordered to attack, and they managed to drive the Californians off. The enemy fired the cannons at the advancing Americans, but as Gillespie describes, quote, As we approached the ford, the ball and grape fell thick among us, but the men moved steadily forward. Unquote. When the two forces met, the results were different than the Battle of San Pasquale. The army engaged the Californians and took out their cannons. Gillespie oversaw the rear, and as he crossed the river, the flanking enemy rushed towards his position. The fire and tactics by Gillespie and his men were so effective that the enemy instantly dispersed and fled the battlefield. The Americans were able to capture the hill and win the battle. Stockton had the band play Hail Columbia and Yankee Doodle to celebrate the victory. The American losses were two killed and nine wounded. At 0900 the following morning, the Americans continued their march. They met some resistance on their way towards their target destination. A group of Californians with two cannons started to fire at the Americans, but one report stated, quote, In most cases, the range of their balls by their striking the ground could be determined with precision in time to dodge them, unquote. The United States deployed their cannons and combined with accurate musket fire from the Marines, the enemy fled. Gillespie reported that this final skirmish resulted in two or three Americans being injured, one of whom was him, who was shot by a musket ball in the hip. The United States made camp near the Los Angeles River and prepared to take the city. The next morning, just as they were preparing to attack, a flag of truce was flown. The locals agreed to surrender if the United States would agree to respect the property and the people of Los Angeles. Stockton agreed to the terms, but this time, he wouldn't leave a small force garrison to deal with another uprising. He marched his men into Los Angeles and reached the plaza on January 10th. Gillespie took the same flag that was flown there previously and hoisted it up again. The United States had taken Los Angeles a second time, and the negotiation terms for the enemy were lenient. Californians were given equal rights, guaranteed protection of life and property, and they were allowed to leave if they didn't like the terms. 
the ones who decided to stay were only asked to lay down their arms, return to their homes, and help rebuild the city. With Los Angeles now in the control of the United States, the U.S. Army started to arrive in California to launch a larger attack against Mexico. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll conclude the Mexican-American War, provide some statistics, and summarize Gillespie's service in the Marine Corps. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is The Last Stand of Fox Company by Bob Drury and Tom Clavin. This book follows the Marines of Fox Company during the North Korean War. The details in this book are outstanding. The book discusses the reasoning behind MacArthur's decision to send troops deep into North Korea, which ultimately results in Marines finding themselves surrounded by 100,000 Chinese soldiers. This book shares another excellent account of the tenacity of Marines and their ability to surmount incredible odds. Sometimes the author spends a little too much time setting up a story, and the author spends a little too much time analyzing a character's life before the military like where they went to school or what they were like as a child. I appreciate that level of detail sometimes, but what I truly like about this book is the author's ability to get into the action quickly. There's a lot of action in this book, and it's hard not to get emotional at some of the stories. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.